edible, bakeable, ridiculously delicious. It's dope, and it's legit cookie dough. It's also the only kind of dope I encourage my listeners to enjoy. With delicious flavors like Ride or Die, Cookie Monster, my kid's favorite, I think because it's blue and extra delicious. You want s'more and fairy dust? You can buy yours online at dope.com. That's spelled D-O-U-G-H-P dot com. Buy dope, give hope. A portion of every purchase is donated to a mental health and addiction recovery nonprofit. At the time this airs, Kelsey and Dope have donated over 66,000 mental health treatment minutes. That's nothing to sneeze at. Founder Kelsey Morera is a Shark Tank alum, voted to the Forbes 30 Under 30, and a recovering alcoholic herself. She is the real deal. Kelsey was kind enough to share her story on the Dismantled Life podcast with me. And Kelsey's episode airs on November 13th. Listen anywhere you grab your podcasts. Treat yourself to some dope. Support Kelsey Marrera. Support dope. Help drive Kelsey's donated mental health treatment contribution and support the Dismantled Life podcast. Use the code DismantledLife for 10% off. Buy some dope and help make it a great day. Stay sober. Shitty things happen to you and then you're like, everyone hates me. I'm going to take more drugs. Only shitty things happen to me. I'm going to take more drugs. My couple friends and I, my little drug addict friends, we would go steal things. Drug addict mastermind, icky, icky brain that like can maneuver those situations. So I start taking Xanax every day. I was loving it. Then I was introduced in college to pain medication. So hydrocodone. Uh, Norcos, I loved those because that gave you that euphoria. The Xanax was more of like a and you forget things. Xanax, you forget. My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. Besides boxing, walking, and podcasting, I don't know if there's much more in the world. I don't think so. Maybe vaping? <laughs> vaping, yeah, vaping's in there. <laughs> that was a jab. That was a jab. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony right. knows my propensity of uh, to vape and vape, vape pretty hard. I with a little, a little vape. Yeah, I, I right. can't... Uh, I can't do that, man. It's the first domino to fall. I've got to be careful with all that shit. Anything like that, I'm, I, I just will start thinking, you know, that didn't, that wasn't so bad. Let's take the next fucking step and see how that goes. And then the next one. And then the next thing, next thing you know, I'm in an after hours in Vegas or something, man. I'm fucking losing my mind. Nobody's seen Anthony for a few weeks. I did carrier pigeon. I sent. We were all in Vegas, uh, Jen and I, and uh, another couple, some friends. And I woke up, or I was still up, whatever. And um, everybody else was crashed. So I sent. I put a little thing on Facebook, and I said, "Well, you know, everyone else is sleeping. I'm going to go see what kind of trouble I can get into. I'm by myself in Vegas. This was at like seven o'clock in the morning." And my buddy responded, "It is a joke." He's like, "So this will be the last time we ever hear from you." Because uh, I was, and I did, and I, I think I, I went and got one of those dog bone tropical cocktails. You know which ones I mean? Like you go, they have got those little like bar stations, and you can get tropical drinks in Vegas at those in the casinos or on the street. And and I got the pina colada one. I had an eight ball, 
and I went and played craps. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you know, by myself, I had the fucking time of my life. You know, I mean, Man. I'm not what? sure what else you do there. You got pina colada. You got an eight ball. <laughs> you got craps. I mean, the only thing missing. The only thing missing was a vape. That's wow. exact. See, the only thing wow. missing. Absolutely, I did have cigarettes. I at the time, it's probably menthol yeah. lights. So I had those going. So and in Vegas, you can just lay all that shit out on the table, and, and nobody bothers you. And so I, that's what I was doing between crap rolls, oh, yeah. hitting the tutor, and off I go. <laughs> Awesome. To each his own. That's right. I'm glad you're not there anymore. Oh my friend. God, yeah, it's so <laughs> such a different life now, and a better one, thank God. Because yeah, I'd be dead by now for sure. Yeah, that bad shit would have went down. We are happy to have Jess, and we've been working on getting this scheduled and uh, together for a, a couple of weeks or so. And we are mm-hmm. very thrilled to have you. Thank you yeah. for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This I'm is excited. awesome. Very excited. We're excited to hear your story and. For the listeners to learn a little something about the darkness of addiction into the summit of sobriety with our friend Jess. Sweet. Well, yeah. thank you for the introduction. Of course. Um, yeah. So my name is Jess and I met Anthony through Title Boxing Club. So I know you guys know a little bit of Anthony's backstory on how walking and boxing helped uh, bring him into his current sobriety state. And so I guess that's how we were connected. He was attending my 5.30 a.m. boxing classes. And I always take special attention to the people that make those 5.30 a.m. classes. And I think uh, we've discussed that before, but Anthony was someone I just really connected with on a deeper level. And I wasn't sure like why, but now I realize now that I've found out about Dismantled Life and his past and everything he's doing now to help people um, move into the sunlight of sobriety, like you guys say, I realized we had very parallel paths. And that's why I think we got along so well. And I just thought he was so great. And his family as well. Just really good people. My personal story starts at a very young age. So we're living in Chicago now. We're here recording from Naperville, Illinois. But I grew up in Houston, Texas. So Houston, Texas is essentially a big medical hub for the entire world. We have some of the biggest and best and greatest medical centers there. Um, There's a lot of access and open availability, at least at that point in my life, which was around the late 1999s up until maybe the 2012s. Um, Lots of easy access to prescription medication. Mm. And that was a big trend within um, the circles that I was around. I grew up with wealthy friends. My parents, I I grew up very privileged. My dad is a lawyer. My mom didn't work. She stayed at home. And I grew up in a very structured environment with very, very strict parents. And I was one of the types of kids that would just rebel against that. I didn't like having such close parameters and so many tight restrictions and rules. And just to give you guys like a little background on what that meant for me, It was everything from just really long chores list. And I know a lot of people have gone through harder and worse childhoods, but I'm just trying to give you a little light on on how that affected me Um, because I'm such a wild spirit. And Anthony knows that I'm kind of like a free spirit. I do what I feel when I feel like it. 
type of person. So like we weren't allowed to say fart. Like that was a curse word in our home. Yeah. Um, and we would be chased with Tabasco and like my mom would rub the hot sauce on our gums when we would say things like fart stupid. Stupid was a bad one. At my house, we'd be out of Tabasco by Monday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, y- y'all would move on to the soap. Yeah. So that kind of gives you a background as to the parameters in my household. Very strict. Um, my dad wouldn't let us leave lights on upstairs, fans on, doors open. Doors open? Yeah, you can leave doors open. You have to close. Was he a military guy back in the day? No, he's um he was a criminal defense attorney. And then he left that. Yeah, he's a professional liar. And then then he moved from that kind of darker side of law to state farm insurance law. So now he's just like a insurance litigation. Yeah, insurance litigation. So I'm not heard anyone mention that you couldn't keep doors open. Was that just an OCD thing for him, or or, or? I think it was because now learning more about my father through other family members and things, they say he's very OCD. So I think it might have been he was like the king of the castle, and we just had to do exactly how. And we were pretty scared of him. Yeah, we were pretty scared of him. He was a scary figure. So and he was drinking um, through our childhood. I didn't realize, but he. was definitely drinking. And then I grew up with an uncle who passed away from cirrhosis of the liver, alcoholism on both sides, lots of addiction in our family. So we've been aware of that from a young age. We called it Mr. Yuck in our household. (laughs) My mom would, we had a cabinet, the Mr. Yuck cabinet, the alcohol. Got it. My dad would drink Manhattans. So he would have uh, what's a Manhattan vermouth whiskey and Canadian something? So yeah, typically it's it, it literally is just vermouth, depending on it's in in whiskey uh, is is a strict Manhattan. It's a strong drink, is yeah, all yeah, and it, right. So. Yeah, and he would have a few of those a night, and that's when he would get kind of like snappier, louder. Uh, and I just remember being kind of like scared of him, um, yeah. tiptoeing around the dad, messing with my mom a lot, like my mom. Um, Definitely received a lot of torment from the kids. She was with us all day. Um, also very strict on us, but I started rebelling at a young age. So let me speed up the story because it's kind of long. No, it's good. You're doing great, actually. I was going to say a lot of what you're saying is is very important of the context. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm trying to start the furthest back. Because I, mean, I, I think it's very powerful in the conversations we always have. It's learning about the little finer details of context mm-hmm. and how people, you know, develop. So I appreciate all of that. Oh, yeah, cool. Same. Awesome. Well, thank you. Definitely. So um, I guess my first, I was telling Anthony last week, in middle school, my first um, desires to get pretty excessive with just substances in general was with Red Bull. Oh yeah, I remember uh, Seventh grade, and I was, I was like always the, the gateway drug almost to like alcohol. When you're in middle school, right? I remember guys yeah. like had lots of Red Bull in their locker and yes. stuff. And yeah. it was just like the savage thing to do at the time in seventh grade. You know, we were going to those uh, school dances, bumping and grinding, and chugging Red Bull. But I was always the one I noticed um, out of our friends who would be the person to be like. Ah, oh, let's go to the 7-Eleven. Let's get that six-pack. Let's all shotgun these Red Bulls in this alley. It was always me. Red Bull, I love it. Yeah, and that would trickle in all sorts of crazy activities, like 
all sorts of things that we would do. And eventually that led to in eighth grade, us finding a bottle of Malibu in my friend's mom's cabinet. We all drank a little bit. And then that, that started the, the exploration. You know, what's funny. I would think that Malibu would be more of the entry alcohol that people could, because it looks awesome. It smells great and it tastes great. So mm-hmm. it's an easy entry alcohol. Most people yeah. tell stories of finding a bottle of whiskey or rock and rye or something like that. It's yeah. never like something tasty, like, the suntan lotion of alcohol. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like we found that and a little backtrack into just a note, side note um, from before the family alcoholism and my issues with that. My uncle had actually died when I was in seventh or eighth grade. He had cirrhosis of the liver and then had gotten sober for a few years and then had it again. So I kind of watched him go through that. Mm-hmm. And then pass away right before I started kind of going nuts. You were completely aware of everything he was going through at the time? Yes. Uh, We knew as a family that he had gotten sober and I experienced his sobriety with him for a couple of years. And then I watched him descend back into it and then go through the entire process that you do when you're an alcoholic and you don't take care of it, which is you die, you turn yellow and you slowly die over a course of a year. And he turned into a full-on skeleton. So this is like a warning for people. If you don't take care of it, you turn into a literal skeleton. Your body can't process anything. You turn yellow and you die. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not pleasant. And it's, I, from what I understand, it is extremely painful process. Like painful. it's not, yeah. it's agonizing pain yeah. over a long haul. Yes. So it lasts like a long time. But yeah, so going into ninth grade, um, I feel like I didn't even really latch on to alcohol at all. Like I tried that Malibu. I thought, man, I need something better than this. (laughs) And so ninth grade came. I actually met a boy when I was in my orientation. It's called Fish Camp. This guy, Sean, I can say his name. He passed away. I'll just call him JF. Yeah. And he was into Xanax. That was his thing. I met him and he was like, I was like, this guy is cool. Like he's got swagger. Why is he talking like this? That's swagger. He was like slurring his words basically. I thought it was cute. I was like, oh, this is cute. And he would tell me about Xanax and then I popped a Xan, I popped a Xan. And then eventually I kept hanging around with him and his friends and we would smoke weed and stuff. Like basically right when I got into high school, I started just trying everything that people presented to me of smoking a lot of weed, drinking, and starting to try coke and things like that. But I started dating John, the JF. Yeah. And he introduced me to Xanax. And so I started taking that with him. And we liked it. Like we would, you know, take half a one or something. Like we weren't really making it a big thing. But then he ended up getting shot. So we had been dating a, a little while. And then we broke up. And then the following year, so I was a sophomore And he ended up, a drug deal went wrong type of thing. And he ended up getting shot and killed. So he passed away. And then after that, a couple more people that we were friends with and partying with also passed away. And by this point, we had, so this is over ninth, 10th, 11th grade. We basically were having ecstasy parties. It's hard to kind of chronologically say this, but we were renting hotel rooms, um, and having ecstasy parties. And like, I don't know how we had all this money. Like someone had a teen probably right at this point. 
Yeah, like 16, 17. Okay. And everyone, like, and there was older kids. We were hanging out with, like, older kids. Yeah. Uh, 22 to 27-year-old, like, and we would meet up with them. And somehow, like, someone would have enough money to, like, get us these nice hotels. Like, we would be in chic, like, downtown mm. hotels on rooftops drinking, like, out of champagne. It was weird. I was like, how do we have all these resources? But I didn't. Drug dealers. Yeah, basically. So we were popping like eggs. Credit card, right? Something, something like that. I never bought anything. I yeah. didn't pay for anything, you know? So he passes away. This is during the period of all of us having these parties and these like just Coke binges, mushroom parties, X parties. I tried them all. And I really liked the X. The X I liked. We kept doing that. Like, it was just a happy thing. It felt so happy. Like, we would take it. But then the next day, you felt like you wanted to die. It was a really bad come down. And we would all get, like, suicidal. It wasn't good. It was a dark feeling. Oh, yeah. Um, So I never got really addicted to the X thing. I liked it. Did it maybe 15 times in my life. But So it's this, because you drain your serotonin, serotonin. right? And and so you, you go from a waterfall of it to you deplete the source because it has to rebuild organically or naturally yeah. and your body can't catch up. So there's always a massive crash. Exactly. And yeah. that's why people like if they take it for X number of days in a row or they overdose is the right word. But what happens is you go into this or destabilized form of depression yes. and you can't bounce back. Like, Can you even get chemically or medically induced Back. Can you inject yeah. serotonin? I don't even know how that works. Well, you like re- basically you can like recharge. I think, but like if you're, there are people that have used it so much. I think they might get to that point where it's really hard to. I mean, if I think people maybe do it one night or something, you know, a few days later, they're like, okay, I'm fine. But it's probably hard to get back to like an think. actual baseline if you do it a lot, a lot. Uh, so luckily, I didn't get into that path. Um, that was just a little side bar on my little drug addiction journey. But going back to the Xanax, I realized that was the one I could take every day. I was like, man, this is something I can function on because something within me was like hurting. And it was always that way. Like since I was little, because obviously if I'm in seventh, eighth grade, like wanting to slam Red Bulls, like why would I be wanting to do that? Like why, you know, no one else was wanting to, but they went along with it. Cause like, Oh, just is fun. It's too crazy. Right. But it's like, why was I wanting to do that? And those are things I later found out luckily um, with a lot of self exploration and sobriety time, but the Xanax. So I was basically seeking something that every day I could numb out. Like I had experienced life in its fullness to what I had thought. I had a big ego. I had a big ego. I was like, I've been there, done that. Life's lame. Let's create my own little life for myself that I can just curl into every day and not mess with anyone else. Because that's the drug addict's journey. And you guys know that better than anyone else and alcoholics too. You're like, "Mm, I like me the most. I want to do everything for me. And let's create all the situations that are perfect, not for my true self, but for my addict self, my icky, nasty, lower self to thrive in. And so you create that reality for yourself and you create these self-fulfilling prophecies of shit. Yeah. You have the shitty life, shitty things happen to you. And then you're like, everyone hates me. I'm going to take more drugs. Only shitty things happen to me. I'm going to take more drugs. Um, And so, yeah, that's why you end up in years and years of hell. So I start taking Xanax every day. I was loving it. Then I was introduced in college to, Game medication, so hydrocodone, 
mm-hmm. uh, Norco's. I loved those because that gave you that euphoria. The Xanax was more of like a, and you forget things. Xanax, you forget. You don't remember anything. One of the main things, activities in high school that my couple friends and I, my little drug addict friends, we would go steal things. So Xanax lowers your inhibitions. It's an anti-anxiety medication. So obviously when you're that like me, the only few options of things you can do are like hang out at a pool and lay out and like drink or smoke weed, or you can go to the mall because what this drug makes you want to do. And I've reconfirmed this with many people. It makes you want to steal. It makes you want to steal things from people. Really? It, it's like no one can see you type thing. Like you think no one can see you. Hmm. And I think, I don't know. Like I got caught a couple times stealing, but honestly, I didn't get caught a lot. I don't know if it's that like drug addict mastermind icky icky brain that like can maneuver those situations so well. But we would go to the mall and go to Neiman Marcus. We'd go to Nordstrom. We would go to stores that had like thousand dollar top and just like go in the dressing room and just throw stuff in our bag. Hmm. And act super entitled, walking around the store, looking at stuff like, uh, uh, <laughs> and then just walk out and go home and be like, oh my God, we have $10,000 worth of juicy couture clothes now. It was bad. And our parents would be like, where'd you get all this shit? They never trusted us. My parents never trusted me. I was always grounded, but they well, always. Those are tells. I mean, you're, you're showing up with designer clothes that they know they didn't pay for. Yeah. They're wondering where would you get I don't even know, like, I'm not a designer clothes guy, but if, if I had a $10,000 shirt, my wife, Jen, would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I think you said something pretty interesting there, too, though, is you said they never trusted me or I was always grounded. And I felt, I felt similar to that, too, growing up. And I wonder which came first, the chicken or the egg? Them and the absolute utter mistrust of you did that. It's sort of, the, once again, a self-fulfilling prophecy also when you know that you're not trusted and you can't even have the door open or closed or whatever. I've never gotten the pills. So I forgive some dumb questions, I suppose, but is the Xanax to the hydrocodone step a common one where you, you kind of take that path? Alcohol to cocaine is like a natural progression. Mm-hmm. It seems is, is the Xanax to oxy or hydrocodone a, yeah. a common step? I would say they kind of go hand in hand. I mean, from what I notice, at least from all the people I know who have been through this same type of thing, people who like Xanaxes tend to like the opiates as well. Yeah. And they tend to do it together, like kind of oscillate back and forth. Um, but that's just from my experience. I like to mix them together, like and do um, hydrocodines yeah. and then like a little bit of Xanax. So one more question. I'm sorry to keep interrupting. But, it's okay. Uh, so I, I've actually talked to some folks that were into pills and they would go to these, I'm just going to call them pill parties because I don't know what else yeah. to actually call them. And then they would just take a fistful of whatever. They didn't even know what the fuck they were taking. And they, mm. and, and they would like just randomly pop whatever they would grab. So it, it was odd. I would assume that, yeah. that we don't have, that's a left turn. We don't have to get yeah. into that. But it just seems even scarier to me to not know what, where I'm going to be at in 30 minutes. I suppose yeah. it seems really scary to me, but anyway, yeah. 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 yeah, I've never done that one per se. I mean, I, I've been in the position where like, like I said, we liked to steal. So in college, if we were like Zanned out or me and a couple of people or me by myself, which was common, I would go into a party and go into someone's 
bathroom, my favorite activity, which was funny because one of my best friends who was not a drug addict, she loved to do it too, which is funny, but she liked, we like to look through people's medicine cabinet and just see like what their disorders were. She liked to do it because she was curious. I like drugs. So I was like, what can I take Hmm. that type of thing? So I guess that relates to the random taking of the pills because I would, but I would look it up. I mean, I was kind of smart about it. I thought it was smart. I would like look up what it was and I was like, Oh, okay, this will fuck me up. I'll take it. And I would just take someone's and I was known for getting in trouble for that too. I was known for going into people's cabinets of people I knew who like had a surgery and they actually needed that. And then they didn't have that when they needed that because of me. And so that had happened a few times in my life. I ruined a lot of relationships that way. Getting towards the end of the drug addiction. So it went all through high school. I graduated. I got into the into college. I went to University of Texas in San Antonio. My parents, I was lucky enough, they, they uh, paid for that. And I went there. Was still on drugs. Went to jail, actually, the first month I was in college um, for stealing. Went to the mall with a girlfriend. We stole a bunch of stuff. We were so fucked up with, that we didn't think to run. Normally, we would run. That was something we would do. Like, if we were getting in trouble, we would run. But this time, it was the time, I guess, I needed to learn. So we stayed there. We got in trouble. Went to jail. My parents didn't get me out. My friend's mom had to. Mona, rest in peace. She has passed. But Mona, uh, my friend Maureen's mother bailed me out. Um, did did because your I, parents choose to not bail you off? Yes. Did that, they did. Okay. They chose to not bail me out. I wouldn't bail my kid out either. I'd be like, yeah. sit your ass in jail. Well, especially because I lost, I left out a little part. A month prior, I had been arrested also. Mm-hmm. So I had graduated high school and went on a binger with my friends at some club and had alcohol poisoning and basically woke up handcuffed to a stretcher in a hospital and they told me that I wasn't of age and they were arresting me for minor in consumption. So yeah, my friend and I went to jail that day. Both times I went to jail was with my best friend. It's usually how it is. Yeah. Both times. Yeah. Went there, went to jail, got out, went to college, got arrested again. Friend's mom bailed me out. I actually had to stay in jail for a little while that time. I was in San Marcos, halfway between Austin and San Antonio, Texas, I had to write my first essay for college from jail. I wish I could read that now. I wonder where that is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I got out and I still didn't learn my lesson. I was still a brat. What'd you do when you got out? Do you remember? Uh, I went to Wendy's and I got a bacon. <laughs> yeah. And then I got more drugs. Yeah, yeah. I needed more drugs for sure. I needed that. So I went and found more of that, felt bad for myself, continued the cycle, graduated college. So basically I would consider myself a pain pill addict the year I graduated college. So I would say I got, I was addicted to Xanax and all that, but I got addicted to the pain pills closer to the end of college. So how did, um, from a a volume perspective, and I only ask this to give people an idea of level, not that it matters because if if you take two and you're addicted, two is too many. Yeah, 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 Um, absolutely. But in terms of volume, I've seen people that have been on pills before that are um, just handfuls a day. And and I I just randomized it because they didn't, they could never tell me or answer the question. So do you have any idea of like what kind of pill volume you were taking? Yeah, I can tell you exactly, actually. So 
Do you want to know at the point that I quit how much I was taking? Whatever you prefer, just for the, as long as it's kind of in, in the narrative, I guess, when you're rounding out, when you said you're getting towards the end of the addiction, I mean, where, where were you landing daily consumption? So I guess. towards the end of the addiction. So I became, I knew that I was addicted to the pain pills at the end of college. And then I didn't get help until two and a half years, I think after I graduated. So at that point, I was waking up and going to my drug dealer. I was waking up at 6 a.m. because I had to be at work at 8. I would call my drug dealer and drive to her house every morning, which I'm sure a lot of drug addicts can relate to. You try to convince yourself. So you try to portion it out. You never buy, you never buy like $800 worth of the pills. You buy eight every day because every day you, that's the torture of drug addiction. Every night you're like, damn. I'm not going to be this person tomorrow. Fuck this person. That's right. But then you are because you're physically addicted and you didn't do the work to do that. You yeah. Know? So you're in that self-perpetuating cycle. But to answer your question, I was taking Norco's at the time. So I would take eight in the morning and they were 10 milligram slash 500s. So that means 10 milligrams of hydrocodone. That's the thing you like. And then 500 milligrams of ibuprofen, which is ibuprofen, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot. Okay. So think of what this is doing to your liver. If you're eating 500 times eight in the morning before you eat breakfast, that's how much Tylenol you're putting in your stomach. You're putting 80 milligrams of hydrocodone. And to give you guys some perspective on that, you're supposed to take, if you have a surgery in your mouth, one 10 milligram pill. So that's for someone who's in pain, in, in acute pain. I wasn't in pain and I was taking 800 times the amount in the morning. And then I would at lunch some days go back because it would wear off. So then I would get six more sometimes at lunch. So like, yeah. And then towards the very, very end, like the final weeks, I had told you I tried smoking Oxycontin a few times. So I almost got into the Oxycontin heroin realm, but I um, stopped myself because I knew it was getting pretty bad and everything was crumbling down. The final straw was I went to my drug dealer's house because the drugs weren't working anymore. I was taking so many and I wouldn't get fucked up anymore. And that made me mad. Yeah. Uh, so I went to my drug dealer's house. Who was this old lady? What was her name? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Oh, we just had the weirdest relationship. Like I didn't like her, but like I treated her like she was my grandma. It was weird because she would get these prescriptions for herself. She had some kind of chronic disease and like, oh, it was just yeah. thinking about that relationship gives me the shivers, but she was my friend. I would call her mama. I would call her auntie. Like, it was weird. And one day I went to her house. I was very open with her. I would tell her anything. I was like, I just said, bitch, you gave me fake pills. Like these didn't work. Like you're messing with me. And I got serious with her. And this is like a strong black woman, a strong 70 year old black woman. And, uh, she's not super nice. Like I could tell there was like some off color things going on, you know, like there, there wasn't, I don't know. I mean, generally drug dealers aren't typically. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So like, but even worse than that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like gang type. It's something felt wrong, but I was like, hey. Some real shit going on. Yeah. I wanted her to give me more and tell me that she ripped me off and she pulled out a gun. So she had her gun out on me. Um, 
And she was like, really? And she wasn't pointing at me. She just took it out to let oh, yeah, me know. Let you know. Yeah. And then I sat down on the couch and crossed my arms. And I was like, nope. I was like, I'm not leaving. And I got mad. And I sat in her house for a long time. And she just kept pacing. And like, finally, I ended up leaving. And I don't remember the very end. I definitely was fucked up, first of all. Like, because I don't remember everything. It was blurry. Yeah. But... I left and I survived and I got home and I cried. I was like, I could have died. And the next day I told my parents, I was like, I gotta, you guys gotta help me. We gotta get into a program. Like I gotta do something. And then it was like all systems go and they were super happy. Um, and then we just started like getting me with a therapist and I got into an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program, yeah. which I was super lucky to be put in this program called the right step, which, cause I couldn't, at least at that point in time, I didn't want to be like institutionalized. And I'm sure most people say that like, cause you're, you still want to have the control, you know? Right. So I think it was a happy medium for me to be able to be involved with this program because it did have this structure element of drug testing every day. So it's not like you could lie about it. You couldn't be that person you were. And in the end, I wasn't trying to be that person. And I think it's because I volunteered myself into this. I wasn't. And I'd had people in the past come to me and like, you have a problem. you need, And I was always like, no, fuck you. Yeah. But at that point, it was of my own volition. It's huge. Um, it yeah. has to be, right? You, I, I'm convinced that if you don't to choose to, to work the program, whatever that program is, mm -hmm. it's going to fail. Like, there has to be a personal, internal, deep commitment to success. Otherwise, if it's forced upon you, I just don't think it'll work. I mean, when they... It's almost like a law of physics or something, right? I mean, it's like it literally cannot work because you're going to be driving the ship, so to speak, if if it's going to be successful. So if if any moment where you're like, ah, they're making me do this, because I, I had that multiple times with me where I attempted many times and it would be like my mother or someone would be like, come on, let's I'd be like, okay, I'm doing it for you. And then the second someone wasn't looking, I'm like, all right, let's go have a drink. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like going through that journey of just realizing. I mean, I, I feel lucky that I didn't have to like go through a bunch because I know a lot of people who had to go to um, treatment centers a lot. And I think that's what kept me away from it because I just I knew that when I would be ready, I was ready. And right. I've always felt a little wise beyond my years. And I knew that whole time that there was a purpose that it was dragging out that long. And I think it was because I had to wait until it was my decision. And I was really glad I waited. I went through the program. Um, what did I learn? There's so many things. I mean, one of the most impactful exercises they had me do there was learning how to pray. They taught me about the science behind prayer, which is crazy because I'm not religious, never have been. But when you learn about the science behind prayer and intention, it's not even prayer. It's like intention. Right. When yeah. you learn about that and you mess with it, woo, there's so much you can create for your life beyond everything, Literally yeah, everything. everything anything yeah. besides this shitty little bubble you create. And once you break out of that and you realize like, I'm the magi magician, I'm the wizard. Like once I get this under control, 
Um, anything's possible. And they kind of teach you those things, but they give it in bite-sized chunks with science. Like I liked it. They weren't getting super woo-woo on me because at that point I'm super woo-woo now. Get at me if you like woo-woo. But back then I was like, no, 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 no. Like I, uh, I need numbers and facts and double blind yeah. studies. And, um, and that's what they provided for me um, in like a healthcare environment. Um, they had me write my eulogy one day. They had us all write our eulogy. If we were to die, um, what would you want that to say? And we had to read it to everyone. Um, so it was a super, that's where I'm, I really am for process groups in recovery, meeting up and yeah. talking in person. I did AA um, also in conjunction with the IOP group, AA 90 and 90. I did the 90 meetings in the 90 days. And then I, AA wasn't for me. I stuck with it here and there for like two years. The program was only eight weeks, the IOP. So I graduated that, stayed clean, was going to these um, AA meetings and also meditation groups with them. But then eventually I moved and, and stopped the whole AA thing and kind of just went on the rest of my journey, which doesn't really involve any addictive thoughts or behaviors anymore. For my vaping, and there's always going to be something. But when you transitioned out of AA, did you kind of go right into another group, or did you just start to kind of do the home study version? I would say home study. At, at that point, after AA, I got really into reading and meditation and internal work because yeah. one of the things I was presented with through AA, which is so awesome, was these group meditations. Yeah. We would meet up. Um, it was like 10 of us and we would sit in a circle, put the time run, get the breaths going together. And then we would just drop into it for like an hour. And um, it was like this timeless. It was just this weird space yeah. we got into together. And it was way more powerful when we all did it together. And um, I got really into creating that for myself. So I started doing self meditations and just going inward a lot and then working on the tarot. And I kind of have gotten into the tarot cards since then. I think meditation honestly saved my life for sure. I needed to, I, I kind of made my way to meditation as well. Ultimately, that's kind of how I landed there. I didn't even know what meditation was for my entire life. Really. I thought it was some kind of weird, complicated thing. And then that was ultimately what's kept me on track now. Still yeah. today I'll meditate twice and I won't miss a day of twice. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. I think, um, you definitely I, feel it when you don't, right? Yeah, sometimes it's only five minutes. Like when I'll get, if I get a little bit bogged down today with work or something, mm -hmm. I'll go maybe five, even five minutes. Like a lot of people think it's some huge thing. It's literally just five minutes of shutting off the brain and I'm back. I'm perfect again. Oh, yeah. I think oh, yeah. Um, it's magic. A, a lot of it is, I think, the power of intention, whatever that intention is. Meditation for me, it has been exercise and physical activity and, and embodying. Well, I mean, just knows the boxing and mm -hmm. walking and biking and, and other things. And that intention is replacing the bad intention in a good way. So, whatever that means to the recovering addict, and if I could say, like, just as an incredible coach and trainer and an amazing physical condition, and part of when we box, part of the end of the routine is core exercising. And what I love about uh, her classes is 
like the intention of stretching and meditative stretching almost in, 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 in like breathing concepts and stuff. It's wonderful. And I am as inflexible as it gets. And actually, I know you her a little bit because she has to come and push me down yeah, because I cannot he's bend. He's tight. And, uh, but I think that that's the, the main thing is for addicts, I think we all need to replace a bad addiction with a good one. And I know doctors are going to cringe at that. But if you've not been an addict, you might not understand that. Yeah, you have to. You got to, at least in the beginning, I mean, you got to replace. I think there's there's got to be a replacement. Just yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's, I mean, being an addict is our superpower. And I said that last time. It's like it's true. not a wound. It gives us a superpower. But if we don't rein it in and have control over it with our intentions, it goes wild and we're dead in the street in five minutes. No doubt. Yeah, and it's. Tension, I think, is really key. Like, I didn't even know what that word meant until, like, 2018 when I was taught by a, by a spiritual teacher about it. And I, I was like, intention, yeah, sure, whatever. And we actually did written, you know, intentions and, and meditated on them and, like, manifested on these things where it was, you know, it was similar to yours of writing a eulogy or writing a letter to yourself from the future. Yeah. All I wanted to do was to kind of, like, demystify the word intention. Is it... It really just means being conscious everything that you're doing. So like when you go, like when I have a meal now, you know what I do? I, I prayer or not a prayer. Like I sit there and I consciously gratitude for the, you know, the food, the thing, you know, and just those little bits of like anytime you're, you're not leaving your mind unattended or your addiction unattended. So you're just checking in with yourself. So like with Anthony, I get a lot from physical activity as well. But any of those cases, like you're basically, you're checking in with your true self, right? And then go, okay, who are we? And are we good? We're going to be conscious today. I know who I am in truth. And I know how I'm going to serve in truth. I'm not going to get, let any of this unattended chaos occur. There's some. I love that. And I love the blessing, the food. I've been on that one a lot lately too. Yes. It makes you feel better when you bless it. It feels like your body. Yeah, and just being fascinated, like being being curious again, like a child being fascinated. Like when I flip the switch on my lights in the house, I'm like, wow, these lights are turning on. I mean, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I, I didn't even oh, wire this building, right? I didn't have to. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. But I love what you're saying, Ashley Tyson, because I think that in order to enjoy life, you have to appreciate the little minor components that make life great. And one of the things they call it, and there's two things I want to talk yeah. about here if we can, is they call it the French or the Italian paradox because they eat foods sometimes that are richer or fattier or technically buttery and not necessarily what I would say good for you. And I, and I love Italian and French food. What mm-hmm. I'm saying is they're, they don't gain weight because it's a whole lifestyle and a mentality and they take their time when they eat. They don't rush through their meals. They don't eat and walk. They yeah. sit down and have a meal. They may even have a glass of wine, which I can't do because bad shit would go down for me now, but what I'm saying is the intention of enjoying the meal for the meal's sake with a yeah. good conversation or company is a wonderful thing. And in Italy, there's a phrase that says, you know, he who eats alone essentially would die. You, you huh. will choke. And, and what they're saying is the meal is really more about the company, yeah. the enjoyment of the meal, even yeah. if it's simply bread and cheese. It's because you purposely enjoy it and yeah, share it. Yeah, they're being people. conscious yeah. and they're bringing and God into it. We're so like separated from our origins, but I mean, for millions, you know, however long you think humans have been around, let's say a million years, like 999,000 of them, nobody had any food to eat, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. Uh, yeah. 
that is your lifeline, right? But somehow yeah. we're so insulated from it. We're like, ah, food. Yeah, I'll just go grab a Twinkie. It'll be great. And it's yeah. great. So there's one thing um, I think Jess might enjoy, and I wanted to get you both take on this. I mean, one of the bonus episodes that Tyson and I are going to have is about alternative means to sobriety. And, and what that really means is different things people can do instead of drinking and doing drugs. And one of them was this cold water submersion. And I don't know enough about it to be intelligent to have a good conversation or even ask the right questions. So I was going to say, I know that you mm-hmm. both do this. I was wondering if you could talk about that just for a little bit, and then we can round up or, or put an end to this particular episode with Jess, which I've yeah. loved every second of, by the way. Because hey, I'm do you fascinated. mind? Can I add one little thing to the end of my story? Of course, okay. please. Because I wanted to wrap it up because I know I kind of like left off on the um, graduating and all that. And it's not long, I promise. No, but after it, it, all that it happened, is, it. it's just a couple other little um, phases of life that happened after my drug addiction phase that I do like to mention to people because it um, brings it full circle. So after getting sober, I met someone in Boston and basically it was a weird attraction. I didn't know why I liked the guy. It wasn't my soul telling me to go to the guy. It was my ego. And I had learned to discern that at that point. But I ignored it. I ignored some red flags. And that was part of my lingering addiction. We're always going to have these little things. These little things where it's trying to sneak back. I didn't realize this because I was naive to love. I'd been in relationships, but I was such a drug addict. I mean, I didn't know what love was. So basically, I was like desperate for love after I got sober. I picked this guy who was like intrigued me. Yeah. I picked him. I was like, I want him moving in with him, move to Boston. Here we go. It was my ego trying to create because he was a tattoo artist. Blah, blah, blah. I thought it was so cool. And he turned out to be a sociopath big time. So I was with him for three years. And basically, I always like to mention that because you have to stay on top of your shit. I wasn't meditating every day when all this occurred. I was letting it slip. And I thought, oh, I'm not drinking. I'm not drugging. I'm good. No, you're not good things slip in. And so he slipped in and that felt even worse than drug addiction, getting over that shit. A sociopath basically is a person. It's not their fault necessarily, but they're usually wounded as children. Basically they seek out empathetic people, empaths, um, which drug addicts tend to be people that feel things super hard because they don't really feel much. They're people with, they're not God connected, let's say. No soul. So they're intriguing to you because they're you're like, whoa, that's weird. Like your body's like, whoa, that person's interesting. But it's like because they're a little scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, was in that relationship, learned what that type of person was and what was going on and how I attracted that person by not doing the work, continuing the work after my sobriety. So that's my warning to everybody. After you think you're done, you're never done. Okay. And something's going to come in if you are not vigilant. So just make sure you're staying on your meditations. You're always leveling up. Um, Because now the great thing is I'm where I want to be. I'm a stunt performer, which I never thought I would be in movies or television. But I get the opportunity to do action scenes. So I'll double actresses or actors just doing things that they will hurt themselves doing being lit on fire fighting and it's fucking awesome and i have to say awesome. i've seen yeah. some of the videos and it's spectacular it's cool it's cool and it's fun and i can finally be excited about life for real yeah and it's full circle because the last gig i had before the pandemic 
I got to play a drug addict. So I, I had my first movie and they actually cast me as a character. And guess what? They flew me out there. Um, they pay you a lot. It's nice. And they fly you out there. They pick you up. You get your own trailer. And I got to play a drug addict. And that was the best feeling ever to come full circle and be begging this pimp. Like, Because <laughs> I was like, I get to finally, like, not be that person. And I yeah. get paid to be that person. And I get awesome. paid well. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Thank you. I love it. It's yeah. great. So and just I, don't give up. Don't give don't up give on up. it. And I, I agree. If you if you take your eye off the ball, then chaos will enter the picture again. Oh. Whatever that means to the individual addict, chaos for me is making bad choices that lead to worse choices that lead to bad mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. And that chaos. And I think if that's the addict in me, I have to have good good thoughts and good actions. Otherwise, the bad ones will take over, mm-hmm. good or bad. So there's a really good quote, you know, life is a battle for territory. If you're not fighting for what you want, what you don't want will creep in and take over. Mm. It's a really interesting perspective. So I think you have to put the effort in and stay focused and not just to not be not just about recovery, but good things too. Like whatever that means, uh, you have to pursue what you want. Otherwise, what you don't want wins. Consciously, right? Like you have to consciously. Yes, Absolutely. So the last thing, maybe just to wrap, if you don't mind, is I'd love to talk a little bit more about this cold water submersion. I've been hearing a lot about it, and I want to try it. So maybe you guys could just give us a, a high level of this, if that's so cool with you, Jeff. Yeah, no, yeah, I love um, it. Since you both do this, I have never done it before. I like the coldest I get is my bathtub. It's very warm. There's a rubber duck. It's, <laughs> it's very nice. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it all depends. Like, I mean, I think you can get a lot out of just a cold shower as well, right? But The shower, uh, I I mean, I was introduced to it by a dear friend of mine who now owns a, a center in Phoenix, Arizona that has a bunch of ice baths and saunas and, and things like that where he has people come in. But we were doing it in like a trough that looks like a, something a horse would drink out of or something in his backyard for, for a long time. And we would go get the ice and fill up the thing with water. And then, you know, we would do about a 15, 20 minute routine beforehand. He was trained by Wim Hof, which is a ah. famous guy nowadays because he's yeah. he invented kind of the, he didn't invent it, right? Every, people have been jumping in cold water for a million years, right? But um, he, he came up with the whole technique of combining the breathing and the doing it in the daily practice, I guess. And um, yeah. So what does it do though? Like, forgive me, but is it cleansing or is it, I, cold water feels to me like it, shuts things it tightens things up is that what's going on i'm not sure what basically when you first get in you're gonna feel like you know you're gonna be like wow this is so cold and it'll feel somewhat painful but then you cross a threshold of probably i don't know 35 40 seconds or something and then you go into like bliss really yeah so from my understanding of it, what happens is it's a blood recirculation. So essentially the water is very cold and when it hits your skin say you do it right when you wake up. So when you're asleep, you're, and this is just from my understanding, your blood goes deep, deep into your organs and kind of hangs out deep in there while you sleep. And when you wake up, if you do this, it's going to hit your skin and try to keep you warm. Like your reptilian brain is going to send that blood from deep within your body out to your skin to try to warm you up reoxygenating the blood um but obviously you're gonna freak out because it's a stress reaction so when it hits you you're like 
And then you get more oxygen. So it forces you to do these deep cleansing breaths. But after that initial reaction, you calm down. And it's weird. After 30 seconds, you're just, you're smiling and you're like, what the hell? You go into this really calm state. And I don't know if it's from the extra oxygen or the blood um, just moving from different parts of your body and kind of just like pulling your attention away from your uh, egoic mind. But that's, at least for me, it pulls me out of my ego because I'm like panicking. I'm like, ah, and then it gives you that. Joyful- you get pulled into the now, like the present moment is the only place you can be, right? Because yes. cold water essentially forces you to, it's game time at an evolutionary level, right? Like yes. you're like, okay, wow, you don't have yeah. time to think about doing your taxes or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, like you're like, holy shit, I'm freezing. And then you sit in there, and as soon as you accept it, the the spirituality of it is that you you must accept this overwhelming greater force than you, and as you surrender to it, you then become one with it, and your body releases you from this resistance. And then as you get out of the water, because it's, you know, usually only a minute or two, you go and you move around. And what's released is uh, either, is it epinephrine, norepinephrine, I believe it's called. And so that feeling that you get out of the water, you know, and you're sitting there and your whole body feels you feel. So that's actually chemical. That's that's norepinephrine being released. And so it resets as far as like output. It it does really well with like hormonal imbalances in terms Mm -hmm. of people. A lot of people are overcoming, you know, other diseases, conditions that they were not getting results with traditional pharma by just using cold water. And so what you said, it's the blood circulation, but then it's that release of the norepinephrine because your body thinks you're in a fight or flight or or a life or death situation and it gives you all the resources your best so you're basically trying this yeah and it sounds i guess uh, it sounds like super woo woo and scientific but if there's people out there who are like whoa like that sounds a little crazy the way you can kind of ease into it and have um, a tangible takeaway if you don't understand what we're talking about is it's a way to prime yourself. So psychological priming. If you do this in the morning and you're having issues with your willpower, like say you're trying to eat less sugar and every day you just keep like being like, forget it. Like I'm just going to do the creamer and do all this stuff. If you want a way to train yourself from the outside in, say you're having trouble with your inside out willpower, it's um, like a psychosomatic way to have something stressful happen to you and you be able to get through it before you even start your day. So not only are you chemically feeling better, but you're starting your day like, fuck yeah, I beat that cold water. If I can do that, if you can do that, you can do anything. And that's how you This was exactly happened to me this morning. I was kind of like groggy. I got in the cold shower and within, you know, 30, 40 seconds, I was like really happy. Like, wow, woo. So if yeah, you're, I love that. If it's you're, best. let's say, a normal person who doesn't have access to troughs with ice filled with cold water, so you can't do the submersion in the shower. You just get into a, a normal shower and then just go to the cold and let the cold water run over you for a minute or something. Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, no. that's all. Awesome. I'm gonna try it tomorrow. What do you call it? Woo woo, woo woo. I love it. Yeah, um, but make I call sure it crunchy to get through it. Just turn it. And then put a two-minute timer. You can dance. You can scream. <laughs> but don't get out. Yeah. 
that was what I was going to say too. Is that your body is going to want to abandon the ship, right? Like you're, it's going to want to get out of there. Fuck this. So yeah. I can see yeah. it. Yeah. I'll, be, I'll be, my kids will wonder what the hell I'm doing and they're screaming and yelling. Yeah. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to laugh while you're going, when, when you think, wow, this is painful, then just start laughing. Laugh. So if, <laughs> as, a newbie, as a newbie, as my oldest son would call me a newbie, can I do it for 30 seconds to start or do I have to go the whole two minutes in? You'll start to like it more as you're in there. Like, right? like it'll be less harsh at second 29 than 25. By the time you get to 30, you're probably just hanging out in there. Yeah, okay. yeah, you'll be fine. That's just awesome. your mind trying to be like, let's not do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Jess, it has truly been an amazing show. Thank you very much for yeah, coming on. And we'd love to have you on and talk more about some of your woo processes yeah. and wonderful routines and meditative walking and all this I great stuff we talked about with some different bonus oh, yeah. episodes and help us explore ways to help people uh, get and stay sober. Yeah, I'm down. You guys are the best. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you. Thank you for coming and sharing all of your wisdom. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. Have a good day. You too.